So I had the privilege last weekend to participate in the wedding of Colleen Shannon. And uh, I knew Colleen since she was a sixth grader and to see her grow up and become married was, uh, was great. She's the, a daughter of Tom and Kathy Shannon. Kathy was our children's minister for many years here at the church. And uh, so it was a beautiful day last Saturday. If you remember it, we were out on the Ward Reservation and it's the highest point in Essex County out there. And actually, that's where the hike's going to be next week. I saw that. Uh, so check it out if you've never been there. It's a beautiful place. Splashes of fall color everywhere. And, and on the side of this hill, there's a single solitary tree. It's a big apple tree. And it, it was the backdrop of this wedding ceremony. And they had all the chairs lined up, and the guests were down, and the guests looked great. And then the harpist starts to play on the harp, this beautiful melody. So it's just the perfect setting. The weather was great. Then the men come in and they're looking handsome in their tuxedos and they're standing there ready. And one by one, the bridesmaids come down the aisle and they're in these long dresses. They're all very beautiful. They're lined up. And then it's the moment, the very moment. And in walks the bride with her dad who loves her so much. And everybody stands up and the bride makes her way in, just perfect, beautiful, radiant in the dress and the long, the, the, the long train, and it was just perfect. And I, li I like to turn and look to see what the groom is doing at that moment. And he was standing there, and he just lost it. He starts crying, and I love that, because that's what I did, and he was such a wreck, and the officiant had to hold him up, and he's just, you know, just so drunk in love with this woman, and she's just so perfect walking in, and just overwhelmed with love. And so the, but the bride is just the center of attention, uh, this amazing young woman. And um, so today, today, as we consider who we are as a church, we are Jesus' bride, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish at all, but holy and blameless and perfect for our groom, Jesus, who loves us, to death. Even, this is one of those images that even as a man, I get it and I want it. I, I want to be this loved. I want to be the bride so perfect and, and beautiful. And when, and the reason is when you realize how loved you are in Jesus, that's the kind of love that will change you. It's the kind of love that will change your heart. It's an amazing motivator. And when we think about the church, this is the motivation for all that we do. Yet, the world around us thinks that our motivation is something very different than that. And I want to address that later in the message. But this is uh, fundamentally the difference between how we are motivated and, and what people think about that. So we're going to take a look at that this morning. We are in this sermon series where it's called Images of the Church. We're trying to get a, a deeper understanding, catch a, a greater glimpse of who we are as God's people. The church is not, of course, a building, although this is a church building. We are the church. The church is people. We are God's people. And there's the church universal. That's God's people everywhere for all time. And then there's the church local. We call ourselves Free Christian Church, that we uh, gather locally as God's people, this expression of, of, uh, of God's people here in this time, in this place. And we are God's church here as we gather on Sundays, but we are also God's church as we scatter about 
wherever God calls you during the week, whether it's to work, to home, or to care, uh, in your neighborhoods and schools, we are the church everywhere. But increasingly in our world, people who are spiritually hungry, people who are spiritually curious, don't think that we have anything to offer. We, we live in a world of great spiritual hunger, but people think that the church has nothing to offer them for their hunger. No real spiritual food. And not only, again, more and more, increasingly in our world, not only do people think that the church is not going to help them on their journey, they actually think the church is going to harm them on their spiritual journey and that the church is something to be avoided. Now, our job is not to be more attractive to people like that and just be more appealing to people who otherwise would not want to associate or, or, or be part of what God is doing. Uh, our job is also not to debate them and, and just tell them all the merits of being part of a faith community, a, a, a spiritual family like this church. Our job is simply to be the church, to be who God has called us to be, to live uh, in such a way as his family, as his bride, as his body, and all these different images. Our job is to just be the church. So to to live that out, we have to understand what was God's design for the church? What did he mean for us to be? And so each week we're taking a different one of these images. Last week we looked at the image of body, that we are the body of Christ. And actually, right here, again this week in verse 30, it says, we are members of his body. We are members of Jesus' body. So the same image from last week is in this scripture as well. But the image we're going to focus on today is the image of bride. We are the bride so let's pray as we approach this. So Father, help us to understand you in this time. Father, help us to understand who we are, that we might live in such a way that you are glorified. But we need your grace, and we need your love, and we, we need your spirit to be very much at work in and through us to even understand these things, Lord. So I pray that there would just be a deep spirit of unity in this place, that your spirit would be our teacher as we look into your word and as we consider it for ourselves. So Lord, use this time however you will. Be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Here's how I want to uh, divide this up. I want to first do a little bit of a, a Bible overview of this image of God's people as the bride. And then I want to then consider what are the implications, not just this passage that's been uh, read for us this morning, but uh, looking throughout the New Testament, and then considering what are the implications for us as we leave this place, as we go about our week, that what difference does this make? So I want to look in those two ways. Um, we're going to look through the Bible, so I want to invite you, there's these black books in the pew in front of you, they're Bibles. <laughs> Grab a Bible. If you use, if you're inclined to use your um, mobile device as, a, as your Bible, then use that. I trust you're not just texting your friends and tweeting out Unless you're tweeting out really um, uh, salient quotes you know, from the sermon, maybe that's okay. But otherwise, yeah, go ahead. I use my Bible on my phone all the time. If you want to use that, you can. This is the New Revised Standard Version. It's a very accurate translation of the Bible. So we might be working off different translations. That's okay. Um, but we're going to look at John chapter 3 first. John 3.29. So if you're not familiar... Uh, Flipping through a Bible, my I had a youth leader once who said, best page in the whole Bible, table of contents. 
Old Testament, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In my Bible, that says page 862. So New Testament, John, 862. Here, you're, you might have a different page. Here. If you're, and then go to chapter 3 and verse 29. This is a man named John the Baptist, we call him. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He was proclaiming that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, was coming into the world. And this is what he says, John 3, 29, if you're there. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. What John is saying is, look, there's this amazing thing happening. And people, people thought that maybe John himself was the Messiah, and he kept having to say, it's not me. It's one who's coming after me. He said, I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is the groom. I'm the best man in this whole thing. And the best man, your, your whole job is just to make sure everything is ready. And when, so when the bride is there and the groom is ready and they come together, it's just this perfect moment. And there's so much anticipation and joy. And he said, so I'm not the groom. I'm the best man and I am thrilled because I have a, a role that just needs to reduce and reduce. And when this union happens, that's going to be the beautiful focus. So right as Jesus is coming on the scene, this language of Jesus as the groom and his people as the beautiful bride is already in usage, and Jesus starts to use this language for himself. He refers to himself as the groom and referring to people as wedding guests and as, as a bride. And so he's already using this language. So let's flip forward. We're going to flip to the right. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians. So we're in the Gospel of John, so then you have Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So flip past Acts and Romans. All right, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, at the beginning. So this is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a church that he planted in Corinth, and it was a church that was, oh, it had a really good start, but they were very divided, there was some infighting, people were trying to gain wisdom and knowledge in different ways, and kind of outdo each other with how spiritual they were, and it became something it shouldn't be, and he had a, a, a back and forth with this church through letters where he was teaching them and helping them to be a healthy church. And uh, here's what he's teaching them here. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, starting at the first verse. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by its cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus uh, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. The, the image here is saying, look, you're, the, the design here is that you are this perfect, pure bride, and you're presented to Jesus, your groom, but that requires of you purity and devotion. And what has happened is people were coming into Corinth and teaching that there's hope apart from Jesus, or there's another good news except for the good news of Jesus, and there's a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. And they were intrigued by that and going away. And, and the image here is that's like cheating on your husband. 
You're supposed to be pure. You can't just you know, sleep around, so to speak. You have to, uh, rem you have to stay focused on the one to whom you can be pure before. So don't accept those other things. In, in that image, we see even in the Old Testament, where when God's people were not faithful to his promises and faithful to his law, that was compared to adultery. It was as if you were cheating on God with other ways. And say, we need a, a, a pure devotion to this relationship. So this is that image developed a little further in the life of the early church. But let's, let's skip ahead. We're going to turn to the end. So we're going to go to the book of Revelation. So you're going to pass. It's the very last book of the Bible. A bunch of short ones. A bunch of short letters. And then... Hebrews, Peter, John, okay, Revelation chapter 19. Re this part of Revelation is a vision. A lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism. It's a vision of the end of time when Jesus finishes his saving work in the world. And all things are being made new. And it's all being known in all of its fullness. And this is the end of time. Uh, Revelation 19, look at verse 6. Revelation 19, 6. It says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunders pealing, like mighty, oh, like, my, like mighty thunder peals, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So it's basically all of, all of God's people, the saints, all of God's people, have uh, been prepared and, and their goodness is now being seen and, and Christ has given that to them and now this marriage between Jesus and his people is going to happen. Flip ahead to page, uh, one page, uh, no, same page in this Bible. Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. So this is a whole city of people. I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. This is God making everything new, and it just symbolizes God's people dressed as a bride, and Jesus, our groom who loves us, who will die for us. It's just a beautiful image. So you can see from the right when Jesus gets on the scene to the very end, this image is right there. And that brings us to our text today. This is another church. In, uh, this one's printed on the back of your bulletin, so this a little bit different translation. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul, again, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that had had some problems, and he's teaching them. And the image here is it, using this image of the church as the bride, Jesus as the groom, to teach them about marriage. That understanding marriage helps to understand Christ's love, and understanding Christ's love helps to understand marriage. So, And you can just see how He's easily flipping back and forth between marriage and this image of Christ. So husbands, you should love your wives just like Christ loves the church in the same way uh, husbands 
you know, should love their wives and care for their wives just like Jesus loved the church. And, and he says, you know, two become one flesh, but I'm talking about Jesus, but I'm talking about marriage. And he's just back and forth freely with this image. And the point here is that the gospel of Jesus and marriage really do explain one another. The more that you understand one, the more that you can understand the other. And there is confusion in our world about what is marriage and what is the purpose of marriage. And uh, I came across this article. This is too good. I couldn't even make this up. This was in Newsweek last month, September 27th. The headline read, Italian woman weds herself in lavish ceremony. This is, a this is a term they call um, sologamy, like S-O-L-O-G-A-M-Y, like sologamy. One woman in Italy, I'll just re read some excerpts here. She wasn't about to let the lack of a partner stop her from getting married. <laughs> Laura Messi, a 40-year-old personal trainer, um, she... <laughs> She wed herself over the weekend in a lavish ceremony that included a cake, a dress, bridesmaid, uh, bridal photos, and over 70 guests. She says, quote, I firmly believe that each of us must first of all love ourselves, she told the Italian newspaper uh, La Repubblica. You can have a fairy tale wedding even without the prince. So Me Messi said she first considered sologamy about 12 years, after a 12-year relationship ended when she was 38, she told her friends if she hadn't found a partner by the time she turned 40, she would marry herself. So, uh, uh, she goes on. Uh, and then her friends, she got some comments on her social media. So, Messi noted that uh, many of the comments on the Facebook page commemorating her self-marriage, so she made a page to commemorate. She said uh, some of the, many of the comments were critical or at least confused, and, uh, and this other woman who was also married to herself um, said her friends were dubious, her co or the comments were. Quote, a few did comment in a lighthearted way that it was a bit narcissistic, she said. Obviously, if you, if you just announce that you're marrying yourself, it's, it's obviously, it's plainly a statement of self-love, and I was under no illusion um, of how self-indulgent that might appear, but I was completely comfortable with my motivations. Um, a, a common reaction to this is that it's, it's a, just deeply, deeply sad. Come off as a way to rationalize loneliness. To people involved, they feel it's more an affirmation of their individuality and a declaration that they're not gonna let you know, societal norms define their happiness. So there's a lot of critics of sologamy, it's obviously a new thing, I think. But the good news is the divorce rate is almost zero. <laughs> it's non-existent. In marriage, this is what, this is what we, we see in, in this passage here. In marriage, there's two, two views of marriage. One very traditional view that when two become one, that the one is greater than the individuals. The individuals get lost in that. And it's all about self-sacrifice. You do whatever you have to do to sacrifice for this new union. And that, it, yeah, it's all about self-sacrificing for the common good. There is, is a more traditional, a, a more contemporary view of marriage that's more about self-fulfillment, that when the two become one, uh, when two become one, that there's a, a self-actualization that happens. So the two, 
it, I, I sometimes call it the you complete me view of marriage, the, the self-actualization view that I, I get married and I become more myself. My partner becomes more herself because we're both finding ourselves in this new union and that we both flourish as, as individuals in the union. So one view is more heavy on the union and the sacrifice. The other is on fulfillment. And some of critics of the old way of looking at marriage is, or the traditional way is uh, all that self-sacrificing can be kind of, it sounds a little oppressive and you lose yourself. You know, critics of more of the, this contemporary view of fulfillment, it's kind of, it can be individualistic, a little bit selfish, maybe even narcissistic. But in the gospel, you don't have to choose either of these things. That self-actualization and finding your true self happens as you sacrifice. So Jesus Christ came to this world out of love for us, his bride, and he gave his life on the cross. He died. And he died because we deserved to die. We, he died because we are sinful. And Jesus came perfect and gave us his perfection. He takes our sin and the punishment for our sin, which is death, and he, he sacrificed. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus did that for joy. It was the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. So that as he gave his life and as he sacrificed, he was fulfilled. He was fulfilling his life mission. And, and the teaching here is just as Jesus did that in the context of marriage, as you sacrifice yourself for the other, that, that you find who you truly are and that you, you grow. So just as Christ loved the church, you should... Love your spouse. The gospel brings these things together. And again, one explains the other. And, but the point here, and is that we take this teaching, so that Jesus as the groom and us as his bride is a great way to teach about what really is marriage. It's all about how loved we are in being loved so fully and so completely that that just motivates you to love others. So, Considering all those ways the image is used, what are the implications for us? What does it mean? First and foremost, it means that your heart can be changed when you realize that you are that loved. And your being loved impacts your capacity to love others. Think about marriage. If you have a bride, a wife, who is loved by a husband and cared for and supported, her capacity to love others, to love neighbors, and to... To, uh, to love the family and, and to love others is increased because of that. If you consider a wife who is abused or neglected and uh, from a, a violent husband, that person's ability to love others is greatly diminished because of the, the hurt and the, the ripple effects of the pain. Same with children. Children who are loved and nurtured in caring environments uh, tend to thrive. And children who are abused and neglected are stifled in so many areas of life that as we are loved, we, our ability to love and to flourish and to be a blessing to the world around us is increased. So if you realize how much Jesus loves you and if you see that love as huge, then your ability to flourish and, and love around you is, is, is huge. But here's the thing. The world around us doesn't think that's our motivation. The world around us and people who are kind of just done with the church they think that we're here to somehow manipulate God, that God is angry and that we're trying to just calm his anger against us, that we're here because we're trying to get maybe a little bit more blessing from God, maybe for our business or for health or, you know, we're here to just to earn that. 
uh, that we're here, you know, just because we're good people and we think we're better than other people and good people do this on Sunday and look pretty like you all look pretty. Um, it, there's all these motivations that really aren't the motivation. It's the same motivation, and I've used this illustration a hundred times, so you have to forgive me. It's not even original to me, but it's too good. So this, the same, it's the same image as if I buy a beautiful bouquet of flowers for my wife. So I, I go to the store, I get the beautiful bouquet of flowers, I come home from work, I hand them to my wife. She says, oh, these are beautiful. Why'd you get these for me? And I say, well, honey, I'm afraid of you. I'm, I'm afraid of your anger towards me. And I got you these flowers, and I hope this is a satisfactory gift so that you don't get angry at me because I can't take your wrath anymore. So here's your flowers. This is not a great Or, I go to the store, I get the beautiful flowers, I hand them to my wife, honey, these are for you. She says, these are beautiful, why did you get these? I said, well, I got these for you because I thought maybe I could get something in return. You know, maybe, um, maybe I had my eye on grill, you know, maybe you'll cook more of my favorite food, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part here, it's like beautiful flowers, you know, what's, what do I get? That's not a great gift. Or, I buy the flowers, bring them home, I hand them to my wife, honey, these are for you. These are beautiful, why did you get them? I say, well, I'm a good husband. This is what good husbands do, darn it, they buy beautiful flowers for their wives. And this is my husband's duty, and I have completed this duty. I actually put it in my calendar that you get flowers on regular increment. And today was the day, and I made it to the store, and I still got home on time. You have your flowers, because I am a dutiful, good husband. A good husband's duty. Thank you. Or I get these flowers. I hand them to my honey. These are for you. They're beautiful. Why did you get these? I love you. I love you so much. I, you bring so much joy into my life. I just wanted to bring joy into your life. And I saw these beautiful flowers, and I wanted you to have them. And you're worth more to me than all the flowers in the world. But I just got you these as a way of saying I love you, and I just want you to have them. And that is, that's a good motivation. We are not here because we're just, hopefully God won't pour his wrath on us, and, or maybe he'll bless me, or or we're just dutiful Christian people who are doing our Christian duty. We're here because Jesus Christ loved us so much and gave his life But that's not what people think we're doing. We, we need to live from a place of being so deeply loved to take that with us and let that be our truest identity and our truest motivation as we go into the world to show that love to others. That's what we need to do. Um, so what are we going to do with this? First thing, um, to, you know, tomorrow or the next day, how do I take the fact that I am loved, I am the beautiful bride, Jesus is the groom, how do I take it with me? First, um, one sort of a practical matter. We are, we use the same sort of imagery when we talk about what it means to be a church with each other and we say, look, there's a time to um, think about getting married. There's a time to check out a church. And there's a time to sort of date a church. And then there's a time to like make a commitment. And then, like you would give your wedding vows. We have a membership in this church where we 
formally, we kind of formally say this is our commitment to one another. And we encourage people to explore that. We have a discovery course next week at the Andover campus. We'll feed you lunch, and it's a one-day. We're going to do it in one, as a one-day course. And we want people to consider, hey, if we're going to live out what it means to be the church together, let's be committed to one another as we do that. And let's, let's um, so we ask people to, to join as members of the church. For some people coming from different Christian traditions that may not totally make sense, I'd encourage you to come and check it out and ask questions and, and we'll, we'll figure this out together. So that's next week. And I would strongly, if you're not a member of the church, I would strongly consider, um, uh, consider that. Okay, second thing is, uh, so that's sort of a practical thing. This one's more, more broad, but as you get up tomorrow, and as you go about your day, whatever God calls you to, we just need to remind ourselves over and over and over again who we are. I am loved by Jesus. That your identity is the bride of Jesus. Jesus died for you to make you clean, to make you his own, to make you perfect. And keep reminding yourself what he's done. Uh, so when your boss gets on you and doesn't appreciate the work that you've done, and you just, you're inclined to just be crushed by that, you say, wait a minute, I am so loved and accepted that my identity is not employee of terrible boss. My identity is loved by Jesus, secure in Jesus, made perfect in Christ. So that stuff does hurt, and I wish my boss would appreciate me more, but you know what? Jesus loved me to death, so I can take it. And I can use that as motivation to press on. When you struggle, when your kids are struggling and you're embarrassed by that, and you feel ashamed that your kids are making terrible decisions and you just can't, it's just not going well, you can tell yourself, wait a minute, my identity isn't super parent, approved by my neighbors. My identity is bride, loved by Jesus. And yes, I pray for my children, and I support them, and I seek to parent well, and I, I cry out to God on their behalf, but my truest identity is not that. My truest identity is in Jesus. When I'm in conflict with a family member or a, or a friend, and, or when I feel like a bad son to my parents, like, oh, I'm a terrible son, I'm not supporting them well enough, and I have, wait a minute, my truest identity is love like and, and now, and I, and I still, I, I want to support my parents, and I want to do and be all these things, but my primary identity is going to help drive me towards that, because once I lean into that primary identity of being loved, now I have a capacity to love that's huge, and now I can use that to love others. So we are loved, and we can love others with the love that we've been given.